Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's Religion Podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. It's now 60 years since the beginning of the Second Vatican Council, and it's an interesting fact that Vatican II is now more controversial, by which I mean more unpopular, than it was when it celebrated its 50th anniversary. One reason for this is that in the intervening decade, many of the people who were adults at the time of the Council have died, and that includes nearly all of the Council's participants. So there's less personal nostalgia for it, and I think much less familiarity with its documents. It's curious to see how many actively involved lay Catholics now speak disparagingly of the Second Vatican Council without any qualms of guilt. And one obvious explanation for that is that the promised evangelization of Vatican II has simply not materialized. This great reforming council, in which nearly every bishop in the world participated, has, in most countries, and especially Western countries, produced absolutely no increase in the number of Catholics who practice their religion. The exception, and it's quite a dramatic exception, is Africa. But I think it's worth saying right now that it takes quite a leap of the imagination to credit the Second Vatican Council with the increase in the number of African Catholics, which is largely the result of population growth and collapse in traditional religions. Catholic decline has been most spectacular in mainland Europe. It's happened at a slower rate in America, and somewhere in between the two is the church in Britain. And I say Britain rather than England or Wales and Scotland because I'm basing the following figures on British social attitude surveys and election surveys. In 1960, about 60% of baptised Catholics went to Mass regularly. Now the figure, after Covid, has fallen below 40%. It's true that the decline in the Church of England has been even more precipitous, but remember that Catholics have benefited from immigration, and without immigration, I think the total would be far smaller. And there's another factor to take into account. Catholics, unlike Anglicans, are required to go to Mass every Sunday. And back in 1960, the vast majority of Catholics who went to church would have been there every week. The 40% or lower figure is based on regular attendance, not the weekly scrupulous attendance that the church, and indeed Vatican too, required. I can't find a figure for the number of British Catholics who practice their religion in the way that my parents and grandparents did, but I suspect that the total might not be much more than 10%. So does that mean we can say that Vatican II failed? Any answer to that question is going to be complicated by questions of causation and correlation. Those traditionalist Catholics who say that the Church has been decimated by the effects of Vatican II have got to explain why other mainstream denominations have seen rather similar patterns of decline over the same periods of time. But if we ask ourselves whether the Second Vatican Council succeeded on its own terms, then I simply don't know how the answer can be yes. One of the crucial documents of the Council, Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the Church, had this to say about the role of the laity. It described them as the people of God, and said that whoever they are, they're called upon as living members to expend all their energy for the growth of the church and its continuous sanctification. Now, perhaps we should say that the laity of the 1960s had no idea that their task would be made so difficult by the number of priests actively engaged in sex abuse and the vigorous attempts by the institutional church to cover up their crimes, something that, as I've often said on this podcast, implicates the present pope in a number of scandals. But sex abuse, horrific though it was, is only one factor, and I don't think the most important one, in the rapid decline in church attendance. 
More important, I'd argue, are the countless demographic factors that affected people's willingness to commit themselves to Catholicism. And they're basically the same factors that made people unwilling to commit themselves to any other religion, at least in terms of vigorous participation in services. The intellectual climate of the modern world makes it much harder for people to accept that any one religion is exclusively true. Demographic mobility means that we just don't live in the same places that our parents did, by and large, and therefore haven't inherited their parish communities. But rather than constantly focusing on pressures from the outside world, let's look at the way those communities themselves have changed. And when we do, I think we can see that even setting aside the question of evangelization, Vatican II has a lot to answer for. And here I want to say something that should be obvious but isn't, and rarely crops up in discussions of the Council, which is that even at the time, most Catholics didn't give the documents of Vatican II anything more than a cursory reading, if that. They didn't have the time, and anyway, they're boring. Catholics' attention was focused almost exclusively on the liturgical changes that happened after Vatican II, that weren't actually strictly a product of its discussions, though some of them arose naturally from it. My own parents were very devout but undemonstrative Catholics, who devoted most of their spare time to working for the Church. I suspect they did read some of the documents of Vatican II, but during my childhood I don't ever recall the subjects arising of the documents, that is, and specific changes to teachings. What they did talk about, because every active Catholic did, was the new English Mass. And, though completely orthodox in their beliefs, they were completely in favour of worshipping in the vernacular. And I think most people were. What I remember from my childhood, and I remember it very clearly, is that people who wanted the Latin Mass back tended to be old and, understandably perhaps, very bitter. Most people liked the new Mass, though they had reservations about certain aspects of it, and it was already clear in the 1970s that some parishes were going completely over the top in their liturgical experimentation. This minority of Catholics, and I think this is true of the Western world generally, identified very strongly with Vatican II, and particularly with its final dogmatic constitution, Gaudium et Spes. This was the document that encouraged the people of God to promote social justice, to campaign for peace and against poverty, noble aspirations that, couched in the rather naive language of the 1960s, could be, and were, easily politicised. These liberals were the people who self-consciously thought of themselves, quite smugly, as the people of God. And they're also the Catholics who are most dismissive of the heritage of the preconsular church. I remember a priest who was attached to one of these parishes dominated by the new people of God saying to me, if our justice and peace group wants to hire the church hall, if the disarmament people want it, if the anti-racism people want it, they're very welcome. But the Legion of Mary, they go to the back of the queue every time. Now, the Legion of Mary, founded in Ireland a hundred years ago, is a lay apostolate of Catholics who place themselves under the leadership of Mary, mediatrix of all graces, and who visit the sick and carry out all sorts of charitable works inspired by her example. There's no doubt that the Catholic Church has benefited enormously from its existence, but given that most of its members, as I remember them, were pious old Irish ladies, 
It wasn't a fashionable organisation, and I don't ever remember them describing themselves as the people of God, though they certainly were. The point is that the marginalisation of groups such as this in so many progressive parishes went hand in hand with the dismantling of so many pious practices in the church after the Second Vatican Council. And this had one very significant and damaging effect. In many places, it banished working-class Catholics to the margins of parish life. By the same token, and this is true of so many parishes, not just ostensibly progressive ones, the middle classes became much more powerful in the parish. They took over and politicised the bureaucratic administration from overworked parish priests, many of whom, in any case, shared their political bias. All over the world, they worked with clergy to make the Mass more accessible to young people. Only very early on, most young people stopped going to Mass. And so we had to live through the horrific experience, and believe me, it was horrific, of listening to elderly choirs trying to perform folk hymns to the accompaniment of an electric organ. Now, I think I should say that it was horrific because of the noise that was produced, not because of the people who were making the music, many of whom were really lovely, my parents' friends, my friends, and doing their best, not consumed by any arrogant sense of being the people of God, but just because that was what was required of them required of them in some cases by a relatively small group of quite dictatorial laypeople who really did think of themselves as uniquely sanctified by the spirit of Vatican II. How we all came to dread that phrase. But it was quite common to hear what you might call conservative defenders of Vatican II say, well, you mustn't confuse the spirit of Vatican II misinterpreted by the liberals with the actual wonderful luminous documents of the council. But, as I have to keep saying, people hadn't read these documents, and even when you do, you can trace a direct line between some of their language and the empowerment of a very self-satisfied middle-class elite of activist laity. Now, Anglicans will say, well, the same thing has happened in the Church of England. Yeah, exactly, and I wonder where they got the idea. Anyway, let's move forward to the present day and the difference between 2012 and 2022 in terms of how we think about the Council. Ten years ago, the Church was in sharp decline, though not quite such sharp decline as today. Yet there were signs of a revival of traditional Catholicism precisely among young people. This revival owed a tremendous amount to Benedict XVI's decision in 2007 to remove most restrictions on the celebration of the Latin Mass without suggesting that it was somehow superior to the new rite of Mass, which incidentally was the only rite that Benedict ever celebrated as Pope. This revival of traditionalist Catholicism, reinvention of it perhaps, because none of these young people had experienced the old Tridentine Mass, which perhaps wasn't all that popular, was naturally greeted with intense dismay by progressive forces in the Church. But I'm not sure it mattered all that much, because neither the tradies nor the ultra-liberals represented more than a fraction of worldwide Catholicism. But in the following year, 2013, disaster struck. And I do mean disaster. And it was a disaster for which Benedict XVI must ultimately take responsibility, because he mysteriously resigned, and the cardinals, not having done very much homework into the controversial figure of Jorge Mario Bergoglio of Buenos Aires, elected him Pope Francis. And I will now spare you this podcast traditional recitation of the many blunders and cruel acts that I attribute to the current pontiff, 
But I will point out that his systematic empowerment of a really small faction of ultra-liberals within the church is being done in the name of the Second Vatican Council. He's crushing the celebration of the Latin liturgy restored by Benedict. He's called what now looks like being a series of synods to discuss every controversial and divisive subject imaginable. And he's doing it all in the spirit of Vatican II, the ugliest use of that concept that we have yet encountered. And this has had the effect of prompting ordinary Catholics, who on the whole, if they're practising, tend to be rather more orthodox than they were 10 or 20 years ago, to wonder, perhaps for the first time in their lives, whether the Second Vatican Council was really worth it. And of course, we can't really say, because that's an exercise in alternative history. What would the Church have been like if it had never happened? We don't know. But I do think that recent events have, if you like, extended the scope of Vatican II's failure. It did address some problems. For example, the Church's attitude towards the Jews desperately needed to be reformed in the light of the Holocaust. It cleared the way for the celebration of the Mass in the vernacular, something that, in principle, remains overwhelmingly popular. Sorry, traditionalists, you're just going to have to live with that. But to repeat, its evangelistic ambitions were almost completely unfulfilled. And the accompanying ambition to unify the Church lies in ruins. The Second Vatican Council in 2022 is as divisive a subject as it has ever been. And for that, I'm afraid we have to thank a Pope who, unforgivably, has turned it into a weapon. <laughs>